Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Well, you know what, Bass Pro? I've breed fish since I was nine years old. You can kiss my expletive. All of a sudden, this like 70 or 80-year-old lady comes around the corner with her fist cocked back all the way to Japan. Fresh ambergris is described as having a marine fecal odor. If you got to check your friggin' line right away, I know we're going to be doing some softcore stuff. Good morning, Degenerate Anglers, and welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that just got a couple of stripers we'll be bringing in for dinner. Won't be long, and otherwise, haven't seen anything yet. I'm Joe Cermelli. Ah, you like Miles that? Multi, and that was a solid, yes. solidly obscure as well. Jaws reference there. Well done, my friend. Yeah, uh, man. I don't know. I don't know where you're going with it, but it was it was great. I liked it. Good. Well, it's it's actually one of my favorite lines in the whole movie, and it slips past many radars. It's like a it's mm-hmm. a quiet sleeper. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's not taking a shark fishing. I'm actually using that to uh, take a striper fishing today. Stripers. Yes. Hey, striper. Uh, if I'm you already <laughs> took us uh, you already took us mahi fishing in Jersey this week. I so did. It, s- settle down there, guy. <laughs> Bring it down a notch. Uh, I do hope. Seriously, I hope everyone listening has already watched episode one of B-Side Fishing on Meteor's YouTube channel. If not, go watch it. It's amazing. You're missing out. Yeah, but of course, you guys watch. Of course they did, man. I hope so. Of course they watched it. These are my people. Uh, Seriously, though, huge thanks to everyone who did tune in to B-Side Fishing this week. And if you didn't, per chance, just go find it as soon as you're done listening to Ben. Okay, I appreciate it. And Mm -hmm. I got to say, it feels good to be back in front of a camera while holding a fishing rod. And also... Editing video again. I get to cut B side, which is mm-hmm. super fun, and I'm proud of it, and I love doing that. No, so. you should be. It's 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 very very well done, and well, uh, thank it's, you, man. it's it's taken it's taken a little longer than we wanted to do to get you bringing another show out, but it's here. Yeah. Everyone can just settle down and go. Stop watch asking. It. Okay, it <laughs> happened. I promised it would. <laughs> <laughs> and I gotta say, striper fishing seems like a a fitting theme for this week, considering yeah. that the B side's all about like scenes. 
Mm-hmm. It's all about like fishing scenes and fishing cultures more than the, the specific fish. And I'm I'm fascinated by the striper scene. I, I don't know as much about it firsthand as I would like, partially because I and I'm ashamed to admit this, I've never caught one, <laughs> but I, I'm I'm interested. Like it it has my attention. No, I, I know you haven't caught one, but you know, that's okay. And hopefully I'll be the one to change that lack of stripers for you at some point. We'll stripers so. together. I hope so. But I think one of the reasons we get along so well is that we both have a deep appreciation of of sort of niche fishing scenes and cultures, even if we don't have much experience within them, right? Like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I have literally fished for West Coast Steelhead one time in my life for about three hours, and I caught nothing. But I'm I'm still very intrigued by the West Coast Steel scene and, and the people in it, you know, very, very much. So what we're doing this week, which we haven't really done before, is going all in on an entire scene. And it's not about the fish. It's about a fishing culture. And the striper scene is very near and dear to me because that's that's one I, I do happen to be a part of. Well, yeah. I mean, didn't you like write a book about it or something? I mean, it seems like <laughs> sort, sort of. <laughs> it seems like so, something you might have some familiarity with. Sort of, sort of. I wrote the complete guide to surf casting and I joke that I, I did that when I was 12. Like it feels that long yeah. ago now. Like it was yep. so many years ago. Um, however, I'll go on record and say that what the publisher of that book wanted was a 101 style book. So it, it looks at surf casting in a, a, a very broad view and, and touches on a lot more than stripers. But I lay no claim now, nor have I ever laid claim to being some kind of striper surf sharpie or like the hardest of the hardcore because I'm not. But I, I surf fished my ass off for many years and, um, you know, did rub elbows with a bunch of guys that I, I consider the greats, one of which basically prompted the entire theme of the show. That's true. Just so you guys get a window into how this all works. Like <laughs> we have a conversation and then we're like, Hey, we should make a show around that. And yes, in this particular case, I got to sit in on that conversation and, and I kind of felt like the, the, the geeky science kid showing up for <laughs> basketball practice, but I learned a lot. Like I wasn't on the inner circle there, but I, I was fascinated. Everything I heard. I'm, I'm glad you were there. It was fun. Yeah. And we're going to share, <laughs> we're going to share an abridged version of that discussion in our smooth move segment where we let guides and captains talk about dumb or otherwise hilarious things that their clients have done. And this one, it's a little longer than normal, but so was last week's. So, I mean, we're just, just, we're playing around with these. We're, we're trying to give these stories a little more room to breathe and see how that works and let us know what you think. Uh, I should also preface this by saying, I I personally know what it takes to like herd and wrangle and babysit (laughs) anglers when you're just standing in a river. And I cannot imagine having to guide people, like especially rookies, in, in the places and situations that Bill Wetzel goes. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? Oh, my God. So joining us today on Smooth Moves, uh, somewhat of a legend in my area, Bill Wetzel is here with us. And, Bill, you are like the dude in the Northeast surf scene, are you not? Like Kind of like the godfather. Would you call yourself the godfather? No, I'm just a fisherman. Okay. <laughs> I've been doing it a long time, you know. Just a fisherman like anybody else. You know, my my talk is my uh, home. Like anybody else, I just know more than everybody else. Where I like to fish. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I mean, be that as it may, you're the you're the guy behind Surf Rats Ball. I mean, you know, everybody who surf fishes from Massachusetts to Jersey knows who you are. And why I'm so excited to have you on is because we've had so many different kinds of guides offshore, fly guides uh, on smooth moves. 
But I mean, you people pay you to take them surf fishing and like not on a quiet beach somewhere. Like you are the guy who will take people to fame spots like the Montauk Rocks, big league surf fishing where you're swimming out to rocks in the dark, crashing surf, dangerous situations. So I figure um, you you had to have seen some shit in doing that for how long has it been? 22 years, you told me? Something like that, 22 years. And you believe people freaking pay me for this? I, do you know, I'm yelling at him. I'm screaming at him. Get off the rock. Get on the rock. And they freaking pay me to well, be yelled at. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, so I have to ask because I've, I've, I've played this game. I grew up around here. Like, you know, how do you vet somebody who, who, who comes to you and is, and is looking to be guided, like knowing what they're going to get into? Is there like sort of a process for like, yeah, this guy can probably hang. This guy, I don't want anything to do with. What, how, what do you do? Well, you know, the the phone rings, like if you get somebody's book and the phone rings and the first thing I ask them, how long you've been fishing? And then I'm like, how's your agility? How old are you? You know, all those questions. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you know, um, I'm like, and then if you want to book a trophy trip, my, my standard question is, can you stand on a rock about 150 yards out into the water in the middle of the night with a 30 knot wind coming in your face, sit, six to eight foot sets pounding on you? And if your answer is no, then you can't do a trophy trip, but you can do a regular trip, you know. So you know, and then and then I'll ask, I'll ask, you know, the equipment questions are big. You know, what kind of equipment do you have? What kind of line do you have? Uh, I don't know. Let me let me go check my line. If you got to check your friggin' line right away, I know that you know you're, we're gonna be doing some soft core stuff. You know what I mean? We're not gonna be out on the friggin' rocks most likely. I will push your ass hard. If, if if I feel that you're capable, I will push your ass. Even okay. at my age, I will still push your ass, even if you're 22 years old. This sounds more like a personal training session than a fishing trip. That's like <laughs> that. That's what I'm hearing. Oh, like, I got. Speaking of this, I got a quick story. If you want to hear it, that's what you're here for, man. No, Tell us a story. So I just I just thought it just popped in my mind. So I used to take this guy out. He was from France all the time. He's a good guy. Loved him. He booked me several times. This is many, many years ago. I was 43 at the time. Now I'm 56. So one night we had a nor'easter roll in, and it was blowing like, I don't know, like, like in 45 knots. You know, pissing rain, new moon. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning, and we're getting ready. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, the south side of Montauk. I fished it, yeah. Yeah, so we're going into the south side of Montauk with like a 45 knot northeast winds, huge water. The water's like, you know, I don't know, like six to seven feet, you know. And uh, we're getting ready. And he goes, hey, Bill, how old are you? I go, 43. 43? That's old. I can't believe you're like an old man. He was like in his 20s. I'm like, oh, yeah, mother. <laughs> I, I, I was like, I'm going to show you how old I am tonight. I didn't say that, but in my head, I just like snapped, man. I freaking snapped. And I, I took him out. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be, I'm gonna, I said to myself, I'm going to be aggressive as I possibly can. I'm going to do exactly what I would do personally. So we start walking out. I can tell he's behind me. He's like, you sure this is all right, Bill? Now you got to realize it's, it's in the middle of night. It's a new moon. So on top of the rain, it's pissing rain, on top of the big northeast winds, in the big water, it's completely black because it's the new moon on top of it all, you know. 
So he can't see anything. And he's going, Bill, are you sure about this? I'm like, yeah, get your ass out here. We're going. So, and we get halfway out. We're about 50, 60 yards out. And there's peanut bunker everywhere, man. <laughs> peanut bunker getting washed off the reef into the deeper water. And I'm just like bugging. And that just like pushed me even harder. So I'm like, so I just kept going and going and going. I see him behind me. And this is the same damn spot on the Nor'easter. I almost lost a customer. So, uh, <laughs> so... We were out there and we didn't we were not getting shit and I'm like screaming, you know, through 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 the roar and everything. I can't believe we're not catching fish. I just can't believe it. This is like, I don't know, like mid-October. And we were out there in the surf, I guess, for an hour and a half or so. You know, we walk back, we start walking back. I'm like, all right, next spot. We're gonna go on the south side again. We're gonna walk about a mile in. He's like Hour and a half, dude. He's like, I'm done, man. I'm exhausted. I'm like, oh, yeah, mother. I dropped them off and I went fishing. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know if he booked me after that night again. You know, I mean, we were, he always booked me. He, he was good. I mean, we were booking like, I don't know, seven or eight trips a year with him. I think he'd moved, though. I think he went to France or something. Really nice oh. guy. <laughs> Did you catch anything when you went back out by yourself? No. I walked, I walked, uh, I walked about a mile and a half, mile and a half. I went way back in and I'm like, oh man, it's the perfect conditions. You know, I went to a really risky spot, especially in that, uh, and with my waders in a wetsuit and, uh, didn't catch anything that whole night, man. There's bait everywhere too. I still, you know, those kind of nights haunt you, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I thought absolutely. that was going to go another way. I got to admit, I thought it was going to be like, you dropped him off and then you went out and just wailed on him. Well, <laughs> no, I, I've done that too. I've done that too. <laughs> Does that happen often? Even if it's not bad blood in the beginning, like do you just take guys out frequently at night and who are just like, I can't do this. I mean, does it happen? A fair oh yeah, amount? oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I'll, I'll take I'll take a guy out and we'll get out in the rocks. And I first thing I tell him, especially if I know you know they're not, they might not be capable, and it's their first time. I mean, you got to realize it's like eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, one o'clock in the morning. And I've already, usually with a guy like that, I've already went through the steps and went through the easy stuff. And now it's time to get out on the rocks, to, you know, and I'll say, you know, if you get out there and you can't do it, you know, just let me know. We can go somewhere else. I always tell them, if you're uncomfortable, and they'll say, Bill, I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I'm just like, let, let a couple waves hit you, you know, and if they fall down, it's a good thing. If they like get knocked off their rock and fall down as long as they don't get hurt. It's a good thing because now you're wet and you know, you know what it feels like. I mean, that's part of my talk. You're going to get freaking knocked down. And once in a while you're going to get hurt. Not often. Hopefully <laughs> we've talked about wetsuiting and rock hopping on this show. And this is a very foreign world to miles. So like now that you're hearing this, like, are you like, do you still want to do this? I'm you in. said you've want to do this. I'm yeah? in. This is, this sounds like it's exactly up my alley. I'm 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 all about it, man. I've I've almost killed myself over way smaller fish than that. So <laughs> it's the best, well, man. Bolts are for sissies, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill. Hopefully, I don't know. You'll get you'll get some calls from this show from Iowa and Ohio, and um, they'll be they'll be racing out for you to yell at them. Oh, that'd be great. I think we have a lot of of masochists that listen to the show. Uh, would be my I'm not guess. Really so I think yell, they're perfect. I don't really yell at them. I just I'm yelling. 
you know, that's, you know it's always it's always windy. There's always surf. I'm just yelling. So so here's another one. Here's, here's another question for you, man. Like you know, in a guide game, so often you know it's the guide's job to untangle your knots and tie on your shit and this that and the other thing. But when you're oh. putting a guy on a rock here and you're not <laughs> and you're not like right next to the dude. How does that work? Like, what if dude fires oh one God, off and it's like, dude. screw? <laughs> no, man. I mean, that, that uh, you know, the older I get, the harder it gets. You know, I mean, sometimes I'm taking out two guys and I have one guy on this rock and, and one guy on that rock. And I'm and this, I call it guide rock all the time because I get the shittiest rock. It's, you know, it's like that big. And I got both feet on it. And I'm like in my 50s, you know. And, uh, you know, oh, the one guy have his freaking he, – he's all tangled up or he's snagged on something. And, and so then I have to get down off my rock in the surf, you know, way out in big water or light water, whatever it is, and go untangle that guy. And then meanwhile, I got the guy on my right hand. Oh, Bill, Bill, I got on a fish or, oh, my God, I got a knot. Now I got two guys and I'm going back and forth in the surf between the two guys. No, I know I look like I'm a fat guy and couldn't do that, but I, I trust, trust me, when I'm in the surf, I'm a different person. Man, I hope you guys found that as entertaining as we did. And while we don't normally plug websites on this show, if you're one of those masochists and you want the real Montauk surf experience surfratsball.com that's where you'll find bill and not just to book him because the guy is also just a wealth of surf casting info and and let me stress what you're booking here is is truly an experience right i know like we mm -hmm. say that about a lot of oh, booking book your experience it's an experience it's an experience you, strong chance you will catch some bass with bill one way or the other but like you you book that for the whole show not just the fish you know what I mean? I mean, it seems like you, you book it to test yourself. A little like, can, bit. Can I, can I hang with this guy? <laughs> I, I want to know. It, it, I'll, it seems like my kind of jam, to be honest. And I can see I, you doing this. Yeah. Like part of the reason I say that is I imagine that whole late night rock hopping is a pretty solitary game. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's very different from packing a boat with buddies or, or, or setting up next to each other in a run. And I yeah. do like the social aspect of fishing, but to me, there's something about that solitary, really driven type of fishing that, uh, that attracts me. Yes. And you, and you're absolutely right, which is what makes Bill's scene, you know, his gig kind of unique because really it's not a social thing, you know, on the beach in the middle of the day with the truck out there and your buddies, that's one thing, yeah. but the, the dot, the drill down, kick out to a rock, stand on a rock. Um, it, it's not a social thing at all. And you might show up with a buddy, but you might not see him again until you're both back at the truck hours later. You know, like right. hardcore surf fishing in, in Montauk and Block Island. It's a very me against nature kind of deal. But Bill has has somehow made it work as a guide gig. And like for a long time, like he's been doing this a long time. Yeah. Though I don't imagine he's getting like a lot of corporate bookings. You know what I mean? Like where the, oh, entire, IC, the entire IT staff shows up to fish <laughs> with Bill. You know, I don't uh, think he can do that. Uh, dude, the entire IT staff might show up, but only half of them would still be around. <laughs> like when you dragged shuffle on into the bar at the end of it, like you might have yeah. some attrition there. That's Darwinism, isn't it? Survival <laughs> of the fittest. You know, you need to we you need to you need to scale down your IT department a little bit. You know what I mean? Book with Bill. Uh, but speaking of bars, we are going to stay in Montauk for just a little bit longer. And we're going to scope out where many of the uh, stripermen in what is arguably the fishiest town in the Northeast go for suds. Also, 
keeping up with storytelling here, uh, this week's That's My Bar nomination and background is being brought to us by none other than Bent correspondent Captain Zach Hammer Miller. We're just going to kind of stay out of this one and just let him throw down because this joint holds a special place in his heart. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. This is Captain Zach the Hammer Miller of Throwdown Fishing Charters. And I am here to tell you, if you were ever fortunate enough to roll through Montauk, a.k.a. the surf fishing capital of the world, that you have to stop at one of the best bars I've ever been to in my life called Liar Saloon. It has everything you want in a little crappy dive bar at the end of the earth. It has a jukebox you could still play Pantera on, a foosball table that sometimes eats your coins, and some rickety bar stools and some very, very scary bartenders. For instance, the first time I was going to Liars, it was about 2 a.m. and we were stumbling up from our motel just down the street and we heard it was the only place that was open in town. And as we made our way through this giant dirt parking lot, there was a bunch of people on this wooden ramp that leads up to the bar and they were outside smoking and having a drink and just hanging out. And when we made it halfway up the ramp, all of a sudden this dude comes flying out of the door, hits the railing and falls down. And I'm like, holy shit, what is going on here? So the dude gets up and all of a sudden this like 70 or 80 year old lady comes around the corner with her fist cocked back all the way to Japan saying, I'll give you another one if you come back here again. The kid keeps talking his shit and the lady punched him square in the friggin face again. It was absolutely unbelievable. And from then on, every time I'm up there, they could have all my money. They could have all my time. They could have all my lies. They could th Their foosball table could eat all my coins, and their jukebox could take all my tokens for Pantera. What else do you want in a place that looks like it's better situated with Mark Wahlberg sitting at a bar in the perfect storm than Liar Saloon? I feel like that was if, if, if B. Arthur had a, a role in Roadhouse. <laughs> That's how it would have gone down. Yeah, man. <laughs> I want to drink there. I did. I, I. You can't make that kind of stuff up. I. I want to go. I want to drink there, and I. I want to go with Zach. Yeah, you should. I mean, he only drinks Bush lattes, so I don't know if they serve that. But that. That's yeah. But you're right. It's like it's like Roadhouse meets Golden Girls. Um, and of course, I've been there. And it's a super cool spot for sure. Very iconic and very different from the wine bars and like tapas restaurants in the nearby Hamptons. Like it's mm. it's a cool spot. I'll just assume there's some level of exaggeration in that story no. because it's it went it's down sacked. just that way. I, probably. Um, but it's based mostly on facts. So anyway, speaking of facts, we're about to throw some at you in this week's much anticipated fish news. Fish news. That escalated quickly. Hey, so, you know, we already told you how pumped we are about B-Side Fishing having finally dropped this week. But listen up. If, yeah, if you were a fan of episode one, and I hope you were, um, and you don't, as in do not feel like waiting for the other episodes to roll out over the course of the next month, we can actually give you a secret code to watch them all right now. So grab a pencil and a post-it note. The code is up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A, start. Of course, I'm kidding. That's... <laughs> That's just the code to get an instant 30 lives in Contra on Nintendo. Uh, but you already knew that. Yes. I assume you knew that, I, too. Of, of course I did, except except <laughs> you forgot the select button. 
in that ah, sequence. I did. Shit. It's yeah, select did, start. Right. So even if that was <laughs> that the code, it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> it would it wouldn't have worked nothing. at all. But we we actually do have a secret code that absolutely will work. Uh, Meat Eater just launched a newsletter called Fishing Weekly with Joe Sermelli and crew. I guess I'm, I'm in the crew. And if you, you signed up for it, if you guys sign up for it, we will send you a link to watch every single season one episode of B-Side Fishing right this minute, right now. You get them all. Yep. Yep, you are you are the main guy in the crew, and that is all correct. Uh, and look, not only will signing up for our newsletter keep you plugged into all the cool new fishing shit we're doing at Mediator, um, but you can consider this like a friendly email directly from me, yeah. your buddy Joe C. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say dumb shit and write dumb shit that will entice you to look at all the cool stuff that we're doing. <laughs> there might even be there might even be like a degenerate corner of sorts where I recommend some tunage, some jams, maybe tell you. What I think you should be listening to, if you want us to think uh, you are cooler than we already think you are. So that's yeah. another thing that's going to be yeah. there. There'll be music. Joe's also going to be pointing out all sorts of dumb, weird, non-fishing related shit mm-hmm. he finds on the internet, which I get mm-hmm. on a regular basis. So now it's it's not just me. <laughs> I'm always like, it's did good. you watch that? And you're like, no, I haven't <laughs> no, yet. I'm very I busy. I haven't seen that. <laughs> uh, so there'll be the weird Joe shit. Plus, you know, we're just going to use this as a space to keep you guys up to date on all the fishing content we're making from new shows to episodes of the podcast to featured articles, all the good stuff, right? And all these gems are going to be exclusive to Fishing Weekly. It's like It's like the newsletter for the Degenerate Club. That we're all in, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Yes. and if you don't sign up, you'll you'll be stuck listening to Yellow Card with Phil behind <laughs> behind the comic book store. So there's, oh, there's uh, and I'm, I'm sure anymore. There's probably a newsletter for that crowd too. Yeah, Phil, was that anyway. more than you bargained for? Are you going down swinging on that? <laughs> Phil will get that. I'm not sorry, Phil. I got <laughs> I got one more bit of housekeeping before uh, before we hit news. Uh, we we and I particularly got a lot of feedback about the the debate that Joe and I did over birding and if it's lame or not. And a surprising <laughs> number of you wrote in support of birding and to criticize my lackluster ability to argue in favor of its merits. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I let a lot of people down there. Uh, I'm just gonna quote from one of my personal favorite emails that we got. It came from listener Katie Kilgus, and it was simply titled "Go Birding, Assholes." Yeah, this is a good one. This is a good one. (laughs) Katie made some solid points, uh, one of which being that I'm a dumbass because no one carries bird books anymore. They have apps for that. (laughs) Because, of course, they do. (laughs) She recommended the the Merlin Bird ID, which connects to eBird, which is an international online database. Katie went on to say, quote, eBird is used by scientists all over the world to track migrants yearly from citizen scientists. One could argue eBird is one of the greatest uses of citizen scientists out there. Even kids can use it. Get your head out of the water and look up (laughs) just once in a while. It's lame, but so are people. And, uh... Can I get an amen for that one for Katie on that one? Amen. It was good. It was it was good. It was good. She I just want to point out that she ended with love the podcast. Like it wasn't a total dig. It's like you guys are kind of being schmucks right now. I mean, I think like I like what you're doing, but like that was that was uh Yeah. So no, I I, I very much appreciated that. Um is that all your housekeeping? Is that just, that's all I just, got? That's, that's all it. you got? Okay. So uh we can move on to uh, our news database, see what we do there. And then, uh, as always, remember, this is a competition. Miles and I do not know which stories the other guy is bringing to the table when we are done. Uh, Phil, 
our engineer, will declare one of us a winner. Uh, you've already taken a shot at Phil today, but then I followed <laughs> up and took another shot. So we're both kind of on like even ground it's in a terms wash. of being in Phil's favor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you do get to lead off. So have at it, man. Fire right. away. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead with a story that's not exactly uplifting because that's kind of ah. my beat. I, I take the depression <laughs> shit, but it feels important. <laughs> So here it goes. On March 25th, leaks were discovered in a holding pool that contained about 400 million gallons of wastewater from the Piney Point phosphate plant in Manatee County, Florida. The leak worsened over the following days, prompting fears of a containment wall collapse, which would have sent a 20-foot wall of water cascading through residential and commercial areas uh, and been a real bad deal. More than 300 homes were evacuated, as well as the first floor of the county jail, as emergency crews first tried to shore up the reservoir, and after that proved unsuccessful, rushed to discharge the wastewater. Crews avoided the potential catastrophe of a a breached reservoir and, and subsequent flooding, but now nearly 300 million gallons of wastewater have been flushed into Tampa Bay. And the mm. obvious question on my mind is how's that going to impact the marine ecosystem and the fishery and the fish? Of course. So the Florida Department of Environmental Protection has repeatedly said that the wastewater meets water quality marine standards for discharge, except for elevated levels of nitrogen, phosphorus, and ammonia. And when I talked to Chris Whitman, co-founder of the Florida-based nonprofit Captains for Clean Water, he told me, quote, That's like getting pulled over and telling the cop you were meeting the standards for legal driving except for being drunk, speeding, and having a suspended license. (laughs) So far, Mm. no evidence of fish or manatee kills have been reported, but the danger from this particular kind of pollution emerges in the long term, right? Because we've done, we talked about this before on past episodes, we've covered the impacts that elevated levels of nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen are having on marine ecosystems, especially in Florida. They're contributing to massive algae blooms, habitat yeah. destruction, fish kills, and and red tides like what happened in 2018. The Tampa Bay water keepers estimate that this spill dumped the equivalent of 100,000 bags of fertilizer into the bay, which is definitely mm. not something this estuary needs. Tampa Bay Tampa has actually been a relative success story over the past few decades in terms of dealing with nutrient loading. In the 60s yeah. and 70s, Much of the bay's marine habitat and seagrass were decimated by phosphate plants and sewage, but through a lot of work and a lot of money, more than 42,000 acres of seagrass has been been rehabilitated, and this event threatens to undermine all that recovery. Unfortunately, we're just going to have to kind of wait and see what happens with this situation. It's not like a we, we can't exactly predict what's going to happen, and we will follow up with you as we need to, but this incident caused me to look into something I'd never even thought about before. Before this story broke, I got to admit, I didn't know anything at all about phosphate mining. And I Mm. certainly did not know that Central Florida is the phosphate capital of the world, producing one quarter of global supply. Oh, I I didn't know that either. Right? No idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, to be clear and fair, we need fertilizer. Like fertilizer is necessary if we're going to, you know, feed the world and all all the things we need to do for producing plants, all, all that important shit. But this industry has a, a problematic track record when it comes to environmental impacts in Florida. The process of phosphate mining, this is way dumbed down, but it, it goes something like this. You extract ore from the earth, treat it with phosphoric acid to extract the useful phosphate. 
you're then left with a whole lot of phosphogypsum, a radioactive waste product. And for every ton of the, the phosphate that you're hoping to get, you produce five tons of the phosphogypsum waste. Mm. You then pile that radioactive material into massive towers called gyp stacks and cover them in water. The result is dozens of massive lagoons all over Florida full of radioactive water that also, you know, happen to contain high nutrient loads and, and heavy metals just for a little, little extra spice. Sure, sprinkle it in. A little yeah. Mrs. Dash on there, yeah. And it turns out, this is, this is a part that wasn't very actively covered in a lot of the news. What happened to Piney Point was, it was actually kind of a best case scenario. The pond that mm-hmm. failed is one of three ponds on that site of, of the, the defunct phosphate mine that went bankrupt in 2001. And that pond that failed is by far the least toxic of the three because it holds mostly seawater from a dredging project. If one of the other two ponds, which are full of gypstack waste, were to have failed, we'd be looking at a much more serious catastrophe. Yeah. And yeah. just a couple days ago, Governor DeSantis announced a cleanup plan for Piney Point that could end up costing Florida taxpayers $200 million to, to mitigate and put back together this mess left behind by industry. And that's just one of many similar sites all over the state. And I'm going to close this segment with a, with a statement put out by Captains for Clean Water because I, I very much respect those folks and the work they do. They're locals, Floridians, fishing guides who, who just now work trying to protect the, the resources and the fisheries around their home state. They're, they're just good people. Uh, and they know more about this than a podcast host in Montana. So here's a quote from Chris Whitman to close it out. We need our state legislature to introduce meaningful policy that holds polluters accountable for environmental impacts like this. The Florida legislature has systematically dismantled regulations to serve and benefit special interests. These special interests, in this case phosphate mining, are profiting off of Florida's resources at the expense of our state citizens and environment. They make their profits exhaust the resource, and then leave the mess to taxpayers. We have to see new legislation that prevents special interests from continuing this kind of bad business that exploits our state and citizens. I, I mean, I agree with all that, dude. And this is like a, it's a, it's another terrible scenario, but isn't it sad to say, like, I, I hear this story and I'm like, man, this is just so Florida. Like when I think of Florida over the last couple decades, it's almost like if it's not one thing, it's another. Like these poor guys are always just constantly yeah. fighting this battle. Yep. With with legislators and and just blind eyes being turned to just horrible shit happening to their ecosystems down there. And I had a long talk with Chris about this, and he made a lot of really great points that didn't make in that story. But the thing he kept kept hitting on is is it's not the industry's fault. Like the industry is not breaking the law. Right. The legislature. Yeah is not forcing them to be held accountable. They're just doing what they should. They're just doing good business. Right. And it's, it is, according to him, from his perspective, the responsibility of the legislature to enact laws that put these corporations in a situation where they have to be responsible for yeah, the message. Yeah, it forces them to do it the right way. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, yeah, and, no, you're right. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying. It's a tough spot because they're not breaking the law because the right law doesn't exist. Right, right. Essentially, and, that's what's happening. It's it's not that different from, you know, the big fight that Captains for Clean Water has been part of is the sugarcane industry. And he made a yes. lot of comparisons between sugarcane and big phosphate sugar. mining. Yeah. 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 Exactly. For sure. For sure. Well, 
Um, I'm I'm certain we're going to have some follow up on this. Maybe we even have Chris on at some point. Um, Love to. This is still still sort of a developing story. But since we're talking about laws uh, and Florida, that is just could not be a better transition <laughs> for me. We're going to stay in Florida, and we're going to we're going to stay talking about laws in a different way. I, on the other hand, I have good news. Okay, um, while Florida residents, we don't know what's going to happen to Tampa Bay. You can finally sleep soundly again because after nearly a year on the lam, fugitive Daniel Armendariz has finally turned himself into authorities. And as we all know, thanks to the never-ending news coverage. Armendariz is the criminal mastermind wanted for diving into the tank at the Gulf Coast Town Center Bass Pro Shops in May 2020. <laughs> I can feel the sigh of relief being breathed around how, the country right now. How did I miss this story? <laughs> so according to this story, this is from newspress.com, this incident occurred on May 10th, 2020. Armendariz has said repeatedly, this is, this is, this is what he says, it just kind of happened. <laughs> oh, oh no. So uh, that was the reasoning. Uh, as if to suggest the mood just struck him. And per the story, he uh, swam across the huge tank's expanse, hauled himself out, and then ran dripping wet out of the store. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I really enjoyed this one, by the way. So it's just going to get better. So I think it's safe to say that the uh, 28-year-old Armendariz thought this would just be like, ha-ha, funny. But no, like the authorities wanted him and they weren't going to just, like they weren't going to let up, right? And he was quickly identified as the tank jumper on the Facebook page, Southwest Florida Crime Stoppers and charged with trespassing. But instead of turning himself in, he just ducked the cops and blabbed on the internet about the whole thing. So here's a post Armendariz apparently put on the Facebook group, Florida boys with a Z hunting and fishing. All right. Mm. Also, this this post confirms uh, this incident was not his first dust up with the law. Okay. So, Shocker. Expletive, expletive. I'm tired of you looking for me like I'm some most wanted fugitive over a little tank dive. Ten question marks. LOL. Come on now. Well, you know what, Bass Pro? I've breed fish since I was nine years old. You can kiss my expletive about the $3,000 decontamination expletive. Yeah, I expletive, expletive diving in, but who doesn't want to dive in that beautiful tank and who has been blasted this hard and charged with felonies? Ten question marks. <laughs> since all... Since, can't even read this. Since all you authorities want to blast me like I'm some nasty criminal and offer awards, well, guess what? Get to working even more because I'll turn myself in when I'm ready. You guys have put me out to be a drug dealing, robbing, aggravated, battering criminal. But guess what? I beat all those charges. So that's wrong, expletive. Man, it is what it is. SMH, you guys are pathetic. Expletive, 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 expletive. This was printed <laughs> in the news story, the whole, the whole entire passage. That is gold okay? right there. Isn't that gold? Well, guess what? Uh, Armendariz was arrested nearly two months later on the charges of trespassing. How did they finally get this guy? Well, the sheriff's office received a call for service stating Armendariz was on his way to the Days Inn on South Cleveland Avenue threatening to shoot someone. <laughs> oh. he, was at the, he was at the motel the morning of July 1 near a vehicle containing a pump-action shotgun and more than 200 rounds of ammunition and charged with two counts of resisting arrest. Now, not surprisingly, he uh, failed to appear in court twice— uh, in the months following his arrest, most recently in February, and uh, pulling uh, another ace out of his deck, 
he moved to North Carolina, which could not extradite him back to Florida over bench warrants. But I guess the heat was finally getting to be too much because nearly a year after ruining what already sounded like a fairly shitty existence to swim with some bass and catfish, uh, Armendariz is back in Florida and ready to face the music. He's gotten a lawyer, likely, I'm just going to say by way of a billboard on some Florida back road. (laughs) And this is the only quote in the piece from his lawyer, right? We hear from the lawyer one time and he just says, we will take care of these warrants. We'll probably just go in, dot, 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 and figure it out from there. <laughs> so uh, what's the over-under that meth is somehow playing a role in this whole uh, thing? I, you know, it, it's... There's no question. <laughs> it sounds very methy to me. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, better call Saul is, is all I can think for this dude. Yeah, that's ex- exactly, exactly. So... I, I will say, I mean, look, it sounds like dude's into all kinds of bad stuff. Like, he's not, like, a nice dude. But there's also that little baby part of me that feels for him. It's like, okay, I did a goofy thing. I jumped in a tank. And, like, you guys are really going to, like, go this hard at me for that? But, like, yeah, they did. Like, I'd they like to were think, not I'd like to think that it's all the other things that are making them go hard at him. Maybe I'm wrong. Probably. It's probably like, well, he we we. We already need to get him for these things, so like now we'll just add the tank. But he's and, he's making it sound like he's like an upstanding citizen, except for this tank jump. Now that I'm saying this, it, it makes me think you don't cross Bass Pro, man. Like if there is one <laughs> entity in the fishing world that you you do can get not away with that shit at Cabela's, off. but not not Bass Pro. I mean, now they're <laughs> one in the same. So no, like if you're gonna if you're going. To cause problems in the with anybody in the fishing industry, that's probably not the right way to go. They have the resources to get you. Well, yeah, they have plenty of money, and like, yeah, they're, exa- they're they, that is true. They're not a little mom and pop tackle shop. They have resources and a legal team. The one thing I do question, though, like, do you really need to decontaminate that entire fish tank over one dude swimming in it? Like, come on, like that's like one of it those de- like you say big money, like on how yeah. much meth the Adnis pops. <laughs> You beat me too. <laughs> How much melted down Robitussin or whatever is now in that tank? Oh uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where 
Land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Speaking of uh, substances that are worth far more than they probably should be uh, at street value. Joe, have you ever heard of ambergris? I actually do happen to know what ambergris is. Yes. You do. You do. I you do. Wanna, you want to you you, you take you, this? I don't want to take it. I could tell you. I could tell the people what it is. Yeah. Let, let's could, do that. To the best of my knowledge, it's giant gobs of like petrified, solidified whale vomit that is worth shitloads of money. If you know where to find it, and I know a guy, I don't know, but I know a guy. So <laughs> that's straight. That is straight up right. It is a a dense, waxy substance formed by the bile mm-hmm. ducts in the intestines of sperm whales, and sperm whales only, not all whales, just sperm okay. whales. Okay, so you didn't know that. And how about this? Giant squid beaks have been found within chunks of ambergris, and the theory goes that the substance prevents sharp, undigestible objects like that from rupturing sperm whale's intestines, right? Because they eat cuttlefish and giant squid and they can't digest the beaks. So the the theory is that this substance, they evolved this substance to kind of wrap up the sharp bits so it didn't cut them up from the inside out. Yeah. And sperm whales probably expel ambergris like they do fecal matter. But if the mass is too large, they may vomit it up instead, hence the whale vomit thing. But biologists disagree on this point. No one's really sure how it comes out or even if it comes out. Fresh ambergris is described as having a marine fecal odor. But as it what floats around. Even, what is marine fecal? <laughs> but as it floats around in the ocean and ages, it takes on a sweet, earthy, musky scent, which is often compared to rubbing alcohol without the chemical astringency. Trump. None of these smell good. What is marine fish? Like, I know what dead rotten fish smells like, and I know what dog shit smells like. I don't know what, like, marine shit smells like. Who, ma- who says that? Okay. Uh, uh, several sources. Uh, chunks of ambergris can float around for years before eventually washing up on shore, which is where people usually find it. Mm-hmm. According to London's Natural History Museum, humans have used and valued rare ambergris for at least a thousand years though its origin remained unknown until large-scale whaling began in the 1800s. It's sometimes called floating gold or treasure of the sea, or its other common name, as you pointed out, is whale vomit, which is somewhat <laughs> less appealing. 
straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> Early civilizations used ambergris for all kinds of applications, but it was highly prized as an aphrodisiac. And throughout the past few centuries, it's remained valuable because it contains ambrine. I think that's how I'm supposed to pronounce that, which is added to perfume to make the scent last longer. In the last few decades, chemists have come up with, uh, with much cheaper synthetic alternatives, but super high end perfumes still use naturally occurring ambergris. So it remains incredibly valuable. High quality ambergris can sell for $10,000 a pound and an eight pound piece is considered a big find. Huh? But last February, a group of Yemeni fishermen lucked into a serious chunk of this stuff. I got to preface this by saying life as a commercial fisherman in Yemen has never been like what we would consider cush, comfortable, yeah. or easy. They like don't, these they guys, don't have a PS5. Yeah. No. These guys yeah. take take really small vessels out in the Gulf of Aden, which uh, is this water that connects the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea. And on like a particularly great outing, like if everything goes right, they're out for a few days and they come back to market with a full boat and everything goes perfectly a Yemeni fisherman might earn the equivalent of 50 bucks mm. each time, like when they really score. Yeah. Right, right. But since civil war broke out in 2014, that already hard life has become like nearly impossible. Two thirds of the, the 30 million residents are relying on humanitarian aid right now. And, and it's, it's, it's really tough for fishermen because many parts of the Yemeni coast are war zones. So fishing is prohibited in certain places and, and even unrestricted areas can just erupt in conflict. Like it's a bad deal. So the fishermen who found this ambergris in the story are from the village of Al-Qaisa, I believe an area. Yeah. Oh, okay. An area in the, <laughs> no in the Southern Aden province. And that, that zone, like this is important context, that zone there, they're in has less fighting and fewer restrictions. And on the day that they struck whale gold, they just happened to have this other guy on board with them who's from a village further north. And this guy had fled the war to, to a, more, a safer part to, to earn a living. He was, a, he was also a fisherman, but he's like, I, I can't fish my homeland, so I got to come south. He hopped on these guys' boats. They went out. And they're on their way to the fishing grounds, and they pass a large dead sperm whale that had been floating around in the area for some time. One of the local fishermen told the Mideast Eye, quote, we had passed by that same dead fish more than once, and we didn't give it any attention as the sea is full of dead fish. <laughs> but on this particular trip, they had that dude from the northern village with them. And he recognized that that was a sperm whale. And he like he knew about the ambergris. Yeah. So he told him, like, hold on, guys. We got forget about the fishing. We got to take in this whale. And I can imagine the conversation that went on when they're like, you want us to do what? He's like, no, no, no. We got to take in this whale carcass. Are you getting to the legality of this? Because, like, can you do that? I mean, over here, totally the U.S. Legal. water is like, you cannot mess with a dead marine mammal. It's uh, Yemen, dude. Well, okay. They're not concerned about that. Like, they, they got bigger problems. Like a, like a global law. I don't know. No, I, I, I'm not. They're, they're, it is actually legal what they did. I, I dug into that. It's, it's legit. They're not, they're not okay. breaking any laws. Um, so they had to get a bunch of other boats to drag this thing in. And again, this is guys at Outsiders convincing all these fishermen, like, hey, stop doing what you're doing that you know is going to make you money. Trust me, we got to drag this whale carcass in. It's going to be great. <laughs> and then ultimately, they got the whole village involved. Over, over 100 fishermen helped drag and dismember this just like disgustingly rotten beast up on the beach, which again, 
You're putting and, a and lot on these guys. Be like, hey, now, now, now start hacking this thing up. Yeah. How did this dude, like, isn't it also a gamble? Like, did he know? Like, how do you know? There's you don't be, know. It's like, it's like getting an oyster. Yeah. You could eat 10 million oysters and not find a pearl. Like, you don't Only know, right? 5% of whale carcasses have this in them. And usually Ooh. it's just a small amount. So wow. I, I, he had to be a very compelling dude. And it worked out because they found a chunk of ambergris in that whale that weighed 280 pounds. Oh, my God. And so then they all had to, like, rally together and take turns guarding that foul-smelling awfulness until they were able to, like, find someone to sell it to. And they sold it to a broker from the United Arab Emirates for the equivalent of $1.5 million, which they then distributed throughout the community. So like most families got 12,000 bucks, which is enough for a young fisherman to marry and build a house or to purchase his own boat, which is like a total game changer for these folks. That's cool. That's cool. cool. And, and they distributed it like the whole, it was a, a village of a thousand families. They distributed it out. Everybody got what they needed. They, they bought medicines for folks. Like it was a really great story of not just, Hey, we found this thing and we pirated it and we, a couple people got rich. Like they really used it to distribute funds throughout the community. And this whole fishing village is now better off for it. And it's just, it's a rare bit of good news coming out of part of the world that doesn't have a lot of good news these days. Yeah. And it came in the form of whale vomit. I dude, I gotta say, man, like I feel like this is this is prompting me to do more research because there's so much more I want to know. Like, how often does this wash up? Where does it wash up most often? Like, can I find this Fourth of July weekend at like my in-laws' beach house? Like, the most common place to find is the Bahamas. And I also wonder, Ambergris K in yep. Belize is that yep. named because like it used to wash up there more or something, or at least it washed up there once. Yeah. But yeah. then my next question would be if I if I do on Fourth of July weekend like stumble on this right like who the hell do you call like <laughs> oh, now I, I got to unload two hundred pounds of ambergris like we we call the fish market like what who do you call I got, I this got thing. nothing put on it, that put one that man. shit on Facebook you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> Facebook marketplace <laughs> if we if that comes up it's definitely going to be a sale bin i'm just saying right yeah, now yeah oh 100% 100% but dude i know i think that's i think that's really fascinating i also had no idea that anybody was still using that in cosmetics and perfume like that's got to be some super high end stuff because if you think about it it's yeah. sustainable you don't actually have to i i knew historically we used whale blubber for cosmetics mm -hmm. and oil lamps and that's why we killed like almost every whale but the whale doesn't have to die to get this stuff so yeah, man, I could see, especially in, in like the boutique world we live in, there's got to be some perfume makers, whatever they're called, that are just like, man, all about it. You must, you must smell, you must smell real good. So we'll move on from. Uh, <laughs> you a, smell a, so marine fecal matterish. Yeah, you <laughs> she smelled of marine. Fecal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a great selling point there. Uh, yep. I'm gonna stay. I'm gonna stay on dead fish here. Uh, not not a big one, but a lot of them. And this is a short story that's just gonna, I think, lead to some 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 conversation here. It also lets me stay in crime. I'm doing the crime thing today. I'm like the CSI to catch a predator, America's most wanted for anglers today. So we already got the some bitch that had the audacity to jump in the bass pro tank. Uh, let's move on to catch a criminal. Um, Anyway, this is a, this is a, a short but poignant story, um, and this comes from Arizona's azfamily.com. Headline, police make arrest after 1,000 pounds of fish were dumped in Phoenix. 
And it's, it's such a short story. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna burn through it. Police have arrested a suspect in connection to 1,000 pounds of fish that were found dumped along a Phoenix road on Tuesday. Police sergeant and justice said detectives were able to develop probable cause to arrest 42 year old Russell Omar Howard Thursday. It started when police were called to the area of 15th Avenue and Pinnacle Peak Road for reports of illegal dumping. When officers arrived, they found a large pile of trash, including several dead fish. Arizona Game and Fish confirmed to Arizona family that at least 1,000 pounds of carp and gizzard shad, boxes and trash from a spear fishing tournament at Lake Pleasant over the weekend were dumped in the area of 15th Avenue and Pinnacle Peak Road. And this dude now faces one count oh. of criminal littering, which is a class six felony. So I did a, a little research in the Lake Pleasant spear fishing, didn't know anything about it. And this is a big deal there. Like it's a um, you know, fairly big tourist destination. It's it's very clear, at least from the videos I've seen, and it seems a lot of people go there to spearfish for stripers, serious dudes. And I was trying to find information on this specific tournament to see if it was judged by total weight or what. Um, I, I didn't really find much, but regardless, this is very similar, in my opinion, to the Sebago Lake Trout story we covered. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, in that this act, like this shit, gives an entire faction of anglers a bad name. And in the case of Spago, it was ice fishermen looking kind of like pigs, basically, for, for leaving all these dead fish on the ice. And I think this, like what happened here in Phoenix, this is something that not only tarnishes the spearfishing community, but bow fishermen for sure. And for the yeah. record, I don't know if I don't know if I've ever said this on this show, but I actually I really enjoy bow fishing. And it's it's not something that I do often, but I find it extremely fun. And I can also say that I've never been in a position where I had to figure out what to do with the 45 carp I shot because I can't shoot worth a shit. Like, I just am Aim terrible. I'm really, yeah, I, really I, low. And, and as, I'm, as I'm doing it, I'm like, aim low and then aim – I know all the things. <laughs> and this somehow, at the last second, it just doesn't touch the fish. So I, it's, this is not a personal issue that I have. Um, but you know, what happens to piles of common carp, whether they were shot with a spear or arrow is, is one of those things that I think people in general sort of turn a blind eye to. It's like, everyone knows the vast majority of the time, those fish are probably going to be wasted. Like not many people are finding plates for a hundred pounds of, of fried common carp meat. Yep. Um, but what keeps people from going overly ballistic about the sport is simply not seeing it, you know? And, um, you know, one of the guys I used to shoot with, he swore that he had people eager to take his fish to eat. And again, uh, up here on, on the river, you're not having a hundred fish night like you would in Texas or where, you know, it's it's just not, you don't shoot that many fish. Um, and another buddy of mine, he said he had the best racket going because he'd trade the carp um, with the commercial lobster guys for lobsters because apparently carp make like exceptional trap bait. But oh, I mean, I, uh, yeah. I would yeah. do that all day. Exactly. The lobster guys say that, Man, common carp is terrific lobster bait for their traps. Um, but I mean, look, I, I never saw any of that with my own eyes. I trusted that was the case because these were buddies of mine. And that made me sleep a little easier after my one or two bow trips a season. I, I don't want to make it sound like I was overly upset about taking a few carp out of the river. But I mean, you know, I'm a rod and reel guy first that, that mostly catches and releases which is why I would never bowfish like twice a week all summer. Like it's it's too much. Like a trip here and there every once in a while, I can get behind that. Um, but, you know, those fish could have ended up in a dumpster, which while that might upset some people too, 
it's far better than dumping the fish on the side of the road because less chance for people to see it. And it's it's dumb moves like this that ruin shit for the responsible guys, or at least I should say the guys with enough sense to recognize that if you're going to waste a bunch of carp and shad, like you waste them away from prying eyes. And I hate to say it, I I hope the dude gets hit with the charges. Like that's a that's a that's a shit move. Yeah. Yeah, the dumping is is a, is a really there's no question that's not even a gray area. That's just that's just terrible. Yeah. But the the issue of what to do with rough fish that mm-hmm. you bow fish. And I got to I got to step back. Common carp I get. Gizzard shad are those non-native? Are those invasive? Are those an issue in the body of water that we're talking about here? That I don't know. I I would think not. I mean, man, gizzard shad are kind of everywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I can see the, I get the justification, common carp, invasive fish, problematic. I, I struggle with the, just the, 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 the wanton waste of native fish species and rough fish. Yeah. It's, it's something that I, I actually, I don't have a problem with bow fishing at all. And I also enjoy it, but I don't do it very often, partially because I'm like, man, if I shoot a couple carp, the hell I. I, I mean, you put one yeah. in the garden or whatever, in a buddy's right. garden. Exactly. Because as we've exactly. already talked about on the show, I've never successfully done that. But what do you do after that? Like, I, I, yeah. I don't necessarily want to eat them, and I don't want to have to figure out what to do with them. I recognize that th- that it's – is it legal to throw them away in a dumpster? I don't actually know the answer to that question. I don't I don't know it either. I mean, I, that's probably a state-by-state state thing. I, I truly don't know. But what I can tell you about the gizzard shad – at least from some of my experience here, it's like I I know a lot of bow fishermen that it's like, can I shoot that? Can I legally shoot that? Yes. Then I'll fire at it. You know what I'm saying? And like gizzard shad, it's like, oh, that is okay for me to shoot at. So I will shoot at it. Like I, I never really shot at a ton of gizzard shad. Like I just, that's not what I was out there for. Like you're trying to whack a couple carp and it is what it is. But the question of why would you do that? Because you can, because I just know there are bow guys who are like that. Like everything that comes into the light, it's like, can I shoot that? Well, yeah, boom. Like, and it's hit. And this is, and and I I know I hit this all the time, but this is where it brings me back to the the big mouth buffalo thing, which we all know I'm fully obsessed with big mouth buffalo. I admit it. And I'm not excited about them being such a popular target for bow fishers because I want them to be around for other reasons because they're part of the ecosystem and because I want to catch them in other ways. I, I get harvesting a few of them because I know they're delicious and great. If that's what you're doing, do it. It's legal. But I, I struggle with the the just the, the going out and just killing a bunch of fish to kill a bunch of fish, particularly if they're native fish like suckers that yeah. are part of the ecosystem. Like that, that doesn't sit well with me. I, I can't yep. condone that. Well, this is this is totally op-ed. We're certainly not coming to a, a conclusion on this, but just to to point out that I mean, that dude's kind of a jerk for dumping all those fish there. And no matter where you stand on bow fishing, I mean, you can't. That that is exactly the kind of thing that gets hackles up in the. Sport. It makes us look so bad. I'm sure yeah. it makes us look bad. So I'm sure you know. Hey, you you know how to find us, Ben at themediator.com. Weigh in. Let us know what you think. We're gonna let uh, Phil. Uh, we're gonna see what Phil thinks of us and our stories this week. Um, and then as soon as we're done doing that, believe it or not, I am getting us back on the striper scene with the freaking Philistines. Oh. I read a book. Joe read a book. So stay tuned for that. It was educational. It was informative. It was entertaining. Miles, 
Let's shower you in some ambergris. You're the winner this week. <laughs> By referencing both the Konami code and Fallout Boy. Yes, Joe, I got that reference. It seems like you guys are trying to both pander to and mock me at the same time. Feel like Carrie. If you guys end up crowning me prom queen next week, I swear to God, I will not even wait for that pig's blood. I will f*** you up. What's a Faustin? It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things. Then I'm Faustin. When David DiBenedetto's On the Run hit bookstore shelves in the early 2000s, my soul was crushed. And at the time, I was in college, often fighting to stay awake in class because I'd been surf fishing all night or skipping it entirely to catch the right tide on some North Jersey jetty. I was also scheming about how I'd get my break in the outdoor journalism game, and one night it hit me. How cool would it be to follow the entire striped bass migration up and down the East Coast and document it? It had never been done before. That is, until Benedetto did it and wrote an entire book about it. I got over it pretty quickly, though, and I even wrote Benedetto an email telling him how jealous I was, but also how much I loved the book. Because in my opinion, despite there being several other great books about the striper scene out there, none came close to capturing the entirety of it so beautifully. Growing up in the 90s, striped bass were almost non-existent. To me, they were mythic, unattainable, and their rebound coincided with that point in my life when you're just old enough to do whatever the hell you want, and also when you had very little responsibility. And I was already in love with chasing stripers, but On the Run made me feel like I was part of something so much bigger. On the Run kicks off in Maine on Labor Day weekend 2001, just prior to the attacks on September 11th. And it ends in late November on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. But what happens in between has less to do with fish and much more to do with people. Benedetto spent time with all the most notable characters in every faction of the striper scene, and plenty of less notable people fighting to preserve these fish or fighting to make a living catching them. Every new person he encounters presents a new perspective and new adventure. Benedetto famously opens the book terrified as he skishes with Paul Melanick, a Montauk local that swims out and drifts hundreds of yards offshore while dangling live eels. He gets to witness legendary surfcaster Tony Stetsko almost come to blows with another angler on the beach that crowded him. And he sits down with former world record holder Al McReynolds and learns that catching such a coveted fish may have been more cursed than blessing. And in one of my favorite scenes, he rubs elbows in a Rhode Island bar with a group of guys I idolized as a teen surfcaster. He's brought to this bar after diving with well-known spear fisherman and underwater videographer Mike Laptu. Here's a taste. When we arrived, Laptu spotted a few trucks in the parking lot with fishing rods locked on their roofs. Looks like the gang's here, he said. Inside, where the yuppie decor seemed more suitable to a gathering of sailing skippers, Laptu told the hostess, we're with a group that smells like fish. At the table, everyone went by their handles from the site Stripers Online. The group consisted of Crafty Angler, Tattoo, DZ, and Hab. There was also a fellow, Iron Mike, who didn't belong to Stripers Online. According to Laptu, these guys were among Rhode Island's most hardcore striper fishermen. Haberek, who was built like a linebacker and sported a thick handlebar mustache, was the center of attention. When I sat down, he pulled out a lure box full of varying size needlefish, long plugs that range in size from the width of a broomstick to that of a pencil. Iron Mike and Tattoo started rubbing their hands together. Most Sharpies feel Haberek's needlefish have no equal when it comes to seducing big bass. When stocks run low at tackle shops, anglers will often call Haberek pleading for a personal shipment. You won't believe the things guys will do for these plugs. 
I had to stop giving out my number, he told me. When Haberick opened the box, Tattoo snatched up a chartreuse needlefish and ran it under his nose like a fine cigar. Oh, this is real nice, he said. Cries of plugho went up around the table. Plugho is a term of derision for any member of SOL who displays loose morals at the quest for a hard-to-come-by plug. Everyone at the table was jazzed for the fall run. It was proving to be the best in recent memory. The bait had stayed close to shore for the past few weeks, and day-long blitzes were common. When I told the guys that the fishermen on the islands in Vineyard Sound were having a meek year, there was little sympathy. Iron Mike, a spark plug of a fellow who got louder with each beer and seemed to somehow work into every sentence, had landed a 51-pounder on a Habs needlefish just a few days prior. It can be boom or bust in the fall, and we're booming this year, he said. I asked the group about the sharing of information on the internet. Many fishermen I had met on my trip aboard the idea of posting secret strategies and drops on fishing websites. This gang was no different. General information was fine, but posting a report with the exact location of where you whacked the fish was a deadly sin. We all had to pay our dues. Why should some lurker who doesn't know squat have the privilege of being told where to go and what to use? The learning process is part of the sport, said Tattoo. Some members had even devised a code for exchanging information. The following day, Tattoo sent me an example. It read, The pattern is open. You are cleared for Twinkies. It was 20 times before puke. Pink was the color of the sky in 1977. Seven times I like pink. I like to swim metal. Twelve was a good year. Pukers like steel six times. De Benedetto didn't have a crystal ball, but he unknowingly captured what I'd consider the last years of true purity in the striper scene. Message boards were a thing, but this was long before Facebook and Instagram. You still had to put in your time, maybe lean on a mentor, get in with the right crowd. You needed more than a photo to be considered the man or to earn a reputation as a Sharpie. Everybody and their uncle wasn't a custom lore maker. John Haberak made lawyers that caught fish, not fishermen, and would probably be pissed off about how much people will spend on one of his plugs these days as a collector's item. Now, Hab is sadly gone. So is Tony Stetsko. And so is Al McReynolds. But saddest of all is that the run De Benedetto followed is gone too. Nobody catches stripers in the Outer Banks anymore. Striper numbers are on the decline, and the textbook route they once followed has been altered by everything from beach replenishment to overfishing to global warming and beyond. But I owe this book for a lot more than solidifying my love of striper fishing, because not long after it was published, De Benedetto became the editor-in-chief of Saltwater Sportsman, which had recently moved to New York City. And through a few lucky connections, I got to interview for an internship. And when I met Dave, he said, Aren't you the guy that emailed me about my book? And he gave me my first full-time magazine job ever in 2005. And here I am now, still on my own run in the craziness that is the fishing industry. All right, all right. First off, everyone, everyone, Joe tackled a Philistine segment. (laughs) Phil, can we get a round of applause for Joe on that one, please? Thank you. I'm hooked on fish and on phonics this week. So <laughs> it, it, it turns out you don't just write books. You know how to read them, too. I'm so I proud. Do. Thank you. <laughs> uh, also, you managed to hit a classic book that I've never read, though it's, yeah. been, it's been recommended to me more than once. Uh, and so I need to get on that. It sounds like, it sounds like it's, it, it actually does a very, very good job of capturing the entirety of 
mm-hmm. of the fishing culture that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's not easy to do. Uh, yeah. I personally very much enjoyed the, the Pete McDonald and Tosh Brown book, The Blitz, which profiled right, right. the scene in a similar way at a different time period and, and in a more visual format. But I, I think I'm going to enjoy that, that longer form narrative even better. Yeah, you will. You, you, you would love this book. And, and the first time I read that book, um, it, it had a pretty profound impact on me. And little did I know that within just a couple years, I'd be working for Dave DiBenedetto at Saltwater Sportsman and That's would amazing. end up meeting uh, you know, or corresponding with so many people in that book. So in a way, it's like a part of my surf fishing roots. You know Dude, this I mean? whole this whole episode is like a little window into Joe's origin story. <laughs> right. It is. it is. It is. And and yeah. as well as being a, a peek into one of the biggest and most engaged fishing subcultures in the country. It's just, I mean, it's huge, right? If you look at the numbers, striper fishing is is massive. Yes, but it's it is. so localized. Yep. Right. And and so a lot of us, myself included, even hardcore anglers have no personal frame of reference with this, but we're aware of it. And yeah. at least for me, like I, even though I don't have that direct experience, I, I get it. Like I understand what's yeah. going on because it's still sure. fishing, right? Because yeah. like, so exactly at one point when when you and Bill Wetzel were talking, and I was just sort of sitting there listening, being like, "Oh, this is amazing." <laughs> I we had to stop the interview, just like like mid interview, just cut it off so you two could geek out over who had the rarest custom wooden striper plugs. Yeah, we literally both got up for a second. We're like, oh yeah, and and like got up to grab some ammo to have a a plugs showdown over Zoom. Right? He threw down first though. He's like, look what I got. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. As he would say, oh yeah, mother. So I presented a metal-lipped uh, surface swimmer made by Twisted, which I I could go on and on about it, but just suffice it to say, I've been offered a lot of money for it because it's a rare one. Uh, none of like you guys were going deep, and none of the specifics of any of those baits or the bait makers or the <laughs> particular like paint jobs, none of that made any sense to me. Like it meant nothing to me. I got what was going on. I understood like, oh, this is a pecking order thing. Who's got the weirdest, <laughs> coolest bait? <laughs> but uh, but I. I definitely, even though I didn't know those exact names or what, why they were special, yeah. I very much recognized the style of the lures, mm-hmm. right? The individual exact lures themselves, no idea. But yep. I, I can see the style. Like I, I see the DNA of where those came from. And that's where we're going to as we close out the show. Because in this week's End of Line segment, we're going to talk about how so many lures considered classics in the striper scene actually have Midwest ingenuity to thank for their design. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. The Creek Chub Pikey Minnow might be the most iconic vintage lure ever produced. With its scooped-out nose, uniquely tapered tail, and, of course, patented step-down metal lip, the Pikey Minnow pops into most of our heads when we imagine old fishing lures. Before Rapala came to dominate the plug scene, there was Creek Chub. Though the Pikey was Creek Chub's biggest selling lure and most recognizable design, it wasn't the first. The Wiggler, designed way back in 1906 by three fishing buddies from Garrett, Indiana, was the first lure to incorporate a diving lip or a mouthpiece, as they originally called it. This was the first time in recorded history that an inanimate object personified the wiggle of a frightened baitfish, a minor miracle of spontaneous generation Modern anglers hardly even notice. From 1916 to the mid-1960s, Creek Chub and the Pikey Minnow dominated freshwater fish and fishing 
and set a standard for lure quality never again seen in production lures. The company only used white cedar wood for the bodies. Each lure was hand-painted with at least seven and sometimes up to 14 coats of paint. They devised a, a proprietary netting through which they could apply that paint to create a realistic scale pattern on each bait. The steel treble hooks were imported from Norway. That insistence on quality ultimately became their undoing because once plastic hit the market, Creek Chub simply couldn't compete. And in 1978, the company went out of business. Entire books have been written about the history of this company and this lure, so I'm not going to belabor all the specifics. But I think contemporary anglers forget how groundbreaking this lure was. Because of their popularity, Creek Chub naturally found their baits attached to some of the most controversial big fish dust-ups of all time. First, the holy grail of American fishing records, George Perry's 22-pound, 4-ounce largemouth, that stood as the all-tackle bass record for almost 90 years, was caught on a creek chub. Only, no one's totally sure which creek chub, since Perry's story changed throughout his life. It wasn't a pikey minnow, we don't think, but no one's totally sure. The pikey minnow is at the center of a different and only slightly less heated record fish controversy, the world record muskie. The standing record weighed 69 pounds, 11 ounces, and was caught in 1949 by Louis Spray, from the Chippewa Flowage in Wisconsin. But from 1969 to 1992, the record was actually held by Art Lawton, who claims to have caught a muskie four ounces heavier from the St. Lawrence River in New York on a pikey minnow. In 1992, the IGFA declared Lawton's record fraudulent, stating that modern scrutiny of available evidence showed it to be smaller than its certified weight and length. I would love to digress into the churning operatic drama that surrounds these two musky record chasers and their fish, which includes no shortage of outlaw buffoonery and alcohol-fueled transgressions on basic decency. But we're not here to talk about the musky record. We're talking about the pikey minnow. And regardless of any BS around particular records and fragile egos, this bait may have caught more big freshwater fish than any other. By the time Rapala even crossed the pond, Pikey minnows were allegedly responsible for a 20-pound largemouth in 1924, a 36-pound pike in 1927, an 18-pound walleye in 1933, an 11-pound smallmouth in 1941, and another 11-pound spotted bass in 1944. That's plenty enough to solidify its place in fishing history. That was very good, but I'm going to step in now and add a pinch of salt to your pikey history. Because this is our Striper show, and there's more to this story. So while everything that you just said is accurate, and the pikey has certainly solidified its place in freshwater fishing history, prior to World War II, the Striper surf casting scene as we know it now didn't really exist. And if you wanted to catch them, you soaked bait. In fact, lobster tail was a common offering because lobsters were actually considered something only poor people ate back in the day. Now, there were also some metal lures and tin lures being slung around, but when the boys came home from war, surf casting, like many other scenes, boomed. Those surf casters figured out quickly that those musky and pike-sized pikey minnows were equally appealing to striped bass, and because, as you noted, they were made so well, they could also stand up to them. There was so much demand for pikeys on the coast that in 1950, Creek Chub introduced the Striper Pikey, an even heavier-duty version of the original. Then in 1953, Creek Chub dropped the Surfster. 
It had the stepped lip, similar to the pikey, but a fatter, rounder, more tapered body than a pikey, which was kind of more cigar-shaped. It was the Surfster that would become the template for many similar plugs, including those Bill Wetzel and I were geeking out about on that Zoom call of ours. Metal-lipped swimmers is the category of lure we're talking about, because they fly far in the surf, they're built to take a beating, they wobble and roll across the surface and create a really distinct V-wake. While Creek Chub may have had a big chunk of the market for a time, like you said, by the late 60s, the Surfster and many of their other lines had been discontinued and nobody was really throwing pikeys in the surf at all anymore. Aside from plastic lures dominating the market by then, other brands of metal lip swimmer, notably Stan Gibbs' Danny Swimmer, had sort of taken hold, partly, at least I think, because they were made in Massachusetts and striper fishermen were then and are now fiercely loyal to local plug makers. Today, there are hundreds of small shop regional builders that turn metal lip swimmers, all of which share design elements with the pikey and the surfster. And while I know plenty of striper guys that proudly display vintage pikeys on shelves, I don't know anybody that chucks them. So you mentioned that Creek Chubb went out of business in 1978, which is true, but the name was purchased by Pradco Lures shortly thereafter, and Creek Chubb does still exist today, though everything now is made out of plastic. Matter of fact, in the early 2000s, in what I assume was an attempt to capture the growing surf market as striper populations rebounded, Pradco did a saltwater pikey reissue, pumping out all the biggest sizes made of molded plastic and featuring trusted modern striper colors like yellow school bus and blurple. And I remember getting a few samples and being super pumped about them, but to be honest, I don't think I ever threw them. Because when it came down to maximizing time on the beach, standing there in the surf, I trusted the beat-up Gibbs and R.M. Smiths and lefty swimmers already in my surf bag. And I think most striper guys felt the same way and as fast as the reissued pikeys appeared, they were gone from tackle shop shelves. So that's it for this week, and we uh, hope you enjoyed our little foray into the striper scene, and I wouldn't be surprised if we pick another scene down the road and uh, go all in again, because this was fun. Yeah, yeah, we definitely will. I'm, I'm, I'm calling dibs on, on tilapia. <laughs> Because we all know how much I you love got tilapia. It. You got, you got it. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I do. Gotta. I feel like we're missing something, though. I feel like there's an there's a a, a very smoky elephant in the room that we need to okay. <laughs> talk about. How did our resident striper surf expert Bob the Garbage Man not show up in this episode? Like, how did you not bring him in? This is a terrific question. I'll tell you what happened. I sent him an outline of the show topics, and he looked it over and was like, "I'm not interested." As soon as he saw the things we were going to be talking about. But he did leave this message for me. Yeah, tell Niles I'll catch more strivers on them creek chubs in Aspen or wherever the f*** he lives than anywhere out here. And you'd learn more about strivers from Curious George Goes Fishing than that directory of notable mooks book you was talking about or whatever. Well, there you go. Pretty sure I just lost whatever whatever street cred I may have once had with Bob. Uh, hopefully we haven't lost any with all of you out there listening, but if we have, let us know, just, uh, send an email to bent at the meat eater.com. It's also the perfect place to send us bar nominations, sale bin items, awkward photos, news leads, and all that other good stuff we're looking forward to. 
Yes. And finally, catch up on B-Side Fishing on YouTube, damn it, and tune in to B-Side next week to watch me hunt down the lowliest, most unappreciated member of the Esox family. Those who know me know exactly what that is. Uh, We've also always got eyes on those Degenerate Angler and Bent Podcast hashtags. And if anyone now has eyes on my rare Twisted Swimmer with the Mahi Mahi paint job, of which like one or two were ever made, back off because that shit's not for sale. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.